So glad you're here today. Thankful for this season of the year and so appreciative of all of our volunteers. This past week we were host to the Chief Whitecap School here in Stonebridge. We had 1,600 people in our building, 405 children on the stage. It was a wonderful night. And I want to thank all of the 55 volunteers who were part of making this uh, irresistible environment and uh, so welcoming. I'm going to ask that uh, Cam Cooper come to the platform now. Uh, Cam is uh, one of our board members, but he's also one of the volunteers at uh, City Center Church, which is a great church in the inner city on 20th Street, and they do a fantastic job of ministering to the inner city. And Cam, you've been part of uh, City Center Outreach for a long time, and just tell us a little bit about what you do and what, it, what uh, occurs throughout the week. Sounds good. Thank you. So uh, uh, Thursday nights during the summer, we actually have a, uh, an outreach barbecue. And so we have um, volunteers for four or five churches, including City Center, who uh, just open up the parking lot for people to come in and to um, have a burger and a hot dog and some coffee. And, uh, you know, obviously it's, uh, the purpose is really to share more about Jesus. But initially, these people just want to know that um, people care and uh, want to get to know people. So it's a great uh, time. We spend two, three hours together there. And then in fall, we open up to a, an in invite inside the church, actually, a little bit smaller group, but um, same thing, just a little bit of fellowship and, and sharing. Yeah, and we know that relationships with other people are critical in their journey in life, and so um, I really appreciate that. So tell us a bit about the dinners that, that City Center puts on. Sure. So three, um, three times during the year, they'll have a, a formal um, a dinner and at Christmas, Easter, and uh, Thanksgiving. And so that's a, a huge event. I think the, um, they, on average, have 800 to 1,000 people attend and have dinner there. And uh, Circle's been part of that for a number of years, providing lots of volunteers. I think at one time we had 40 or 50 people joining and helping there. Um, uh, this year we had 54 54, great. 54 volunteers, and we donated 26 pies. Exactly. Ah. And they, uh, they um, you know, when you're there and you're meeting with the people, it's just amazing to see the smiles on their faces and, you know, the time that you can spend talking with them and just sharing a little bit again about uh, Jesus and, and what we should be doing. So, And, again, connection is so important with people in this demographic, and so City Center does a great work ongoing and provide different services like uh, teaching people how to bank and how to apply for a job and, and these dinners are really critical in building those relationships absolutely you should um you, you could just imagine um people that have run into some difficult times in life and and don't know where to turn and uh again with that first step with a relationship with people at that uh, church or at those dinners it's a it's an opportunity for them to really you know provide some help with that. Yeah, exactly. So, um, Cam, just, you know, we come to the end of the year, and we are a church that believes in sharing and being part of the community, but we also have our own needs. And uh, what can you say to us that would be meaningful at this time of the year? Uh, thank you. I, I think what I would like to share is, you know, again, everyone has... Um, has their time to spend with their families and, and time to spend here. And um, as we look at 
you know, getting into the Christmas season, coming closer to uh, to that time, I asked as a as a board member of Circle, but also as a as just a, a member of the church here, to um, just kindly ask that you look at your your giving and what you can commit to help uh, with these types of outreaches, both in the church, but also the outreaches that we're involved in at City Center and, and a range of things. So I would appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Cam. Let's say thank you to the volunteers who were part of City Center Church. God bless you. Thank you. The volunteers are coming now to receive the morning offering. And could I remind you that Christmas Eve will be a, a big service here again. And we still need 12 people to help us with a parking lot uh, to direct traffic into the parking lot. So if you can help Christmas Eve, would you indicate that on your connection card or just uh, go to the information desk at the end of the service and let, let us know that you will assist us. Let's pray. God, as we give to you now, receive these offerings. Use them to help people in Jesus' name. Amen. Just like home, right? Christmas, great time of the year. And uh, we're all looking forward to Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with family. And we're all making preparations for this great season of the year. Uh, welcome to those who are listening online. And if you wish, there are sermon notes, message notes in your program this morning. You can also access them on your smartphone, the Version Bible app. Just click more, click events, click circle. The sermon notes will come up. If you scroll down, you'll find the Parent Q app, which is uh, critical for parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts to keep the conversation that kids are having in the back this morning, uh, keep it alive throughout the week. So please make use of that. Well, this is the second installment of Doorway to Christmas. And perhaps one of the greatest gifts that God has given us is the ability to think about the future. We all have a framework by which we look at the doorway to that particular future. And our ability to imagine the future is limited because our framework does not have all the answers. We construct the ways we should, it should be now, and we have ideas about how life should be in the future. So consequently... Theists wonder why in the world God would allow bad things to happen to good people. And theists wonder why there are hurricanes and tornadoes and, and earthquakes. And why children get sick and why they die. We wonder why the Rough Riders don't win. We wonder through a theistic worldview. And you wonder... You wonder how natural selection could provide stardust and energy with the ability to wonder. And then there are atheists or agnostics who wonder why theists are so naive. So we ask about questions, questions about the future, about life and death, and it's all through the framework of what we have grown up with. It is specific and sometimes it is limiting. 
Christians believe and have always believed that God actually sent someone to stand on our side of the frame as, as a frame of reference. He walked through the doorway between eternity and earth. And in spite of all of our questions and confusions, in spite of what we know and what we don't know, in spite of where we are in the continuum of discovery as it relates to science and the universe and the human body and life itself, or the fact that we're constantly updating our knowledge, in spite of all of that, we could know with certainty what God is really like. The first century church was losing its focus. There was a first century writer who authored a book called Hebrews. It was actually a sermon that circulated throughout all of the churches in the known world at that time. Christians thought it was so valuable that it was copied and it was circulated. Eventually, in the fourth century, it was included in the official tabiblia, which is now known as our Bible. The first century audience was beginning to lose its focus in terms of what they believed and the religious frame of reference. Since Jesus was not returning as quickly as they thought he was, and it was Jesus who said, I'm going to ascend and leave, and I will come and return soon to bring you back to my father's home. And since Jesus was not returning, they were losing their focus. They were losing their hope. They were wondering, was Jesus actually the Messiah that was promised? So the author to Hebrews pens the words in Hebrews 12, verse 2. He said, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. This is so simple, a simple statement, yet so very profound. We are reminded that the issue as it pertains to Christianity is really always Jesus Christ. When it comes to a Christian frame of reference, the issue is not theology, it's not philosophy, it's not a belief system. It's not about a person, it is rather about a person. Jesus was the founder and he is the perfecter of our faith. One translation says he's the finisher, the author and finisher of our faith. So Christianity really begins with Jesus Christ, and one day it, all time will end with Jesus Christ. So this morning I want to talk to two groups of, of people. The first group is that you have grown up in a Christian environment, and then you ran into life experiences and concluded, I can't believe anymore. I have to leave. Now, the second group of people is that you're thinking about leaving the Christian faith. You might be active in the church. You might be volunteering. You prayed the prayer. You went to camp. You have the T-shirt. You read the Bible, and everybody thinks you're in. But internally, you're struggling to believe. The faith that you were handed is not working to the degree that you had hoped 
and you're beginning to doubt this whole thing called Christianity, and you have these conversations and you're, you're not sure how long you can stay in, perhaps you've been leaning toward thinking that because your experience does not line up with the faith that was handed to you as a child or that you adopted as an adult, it is time to move on. Life really would be better without faith. Now, many of you, like me, have read stories about deconversion, or you've heard people talk about it. Somebody who grew up with a Christian frame of reference, and then they left. And usually, their reasons for leaving have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. There are different reasons for leaving the faith. For example, we... We view, and the way we view and the way we experience life. Often it has to do with this. Rarely do, does it have to do anything with Jesus coming into the world to represent God to mankind. So you look at your life through your experiences and you have this internal struggle to reconcile your experiences with what you have thought or even been taught by God or about God. So you begin to be, start leaning towards the exit door. And you're thinking, this is, this is not what I thought it was. Every version of religion seems to work with children, but then life happens. And the seeds were sown in childhood, but now you realize your parents weren't even on the same page. And it made it easier to question, and it makes it easier to leave. Or maybe you were raised by extraordinary parents, but you get outside of the home of that perfect environment, that home, and realize the world did not line up with your perfect home and your belief system. Or maybe you went to university and discovered things you were not taught before, and it began to shake your faith. And now education is the filter by which you see the world. Or maybe you had a religious experience in a church or temple or even a mosque. And perhaps that religious experience was legalistic and you felt it didn't measure up and you couldn't stay. And so the religious experience, whether we stayed or walked away from us, from it, has jaded us. It has it affected the filter by which we see God. Other people, for them, it's what we feel because of what we did. You screwed up. You have things in your life that no one knows about. You have regret, as all of us here seated this morning have regret. Maybe you violated your own rules and the rules handed down from you from your religious upbringing, and you drifted away and you carry shame because of the seasons and chapters and spring breaks and weekends of your life. And now there's anger in your heart, and it leaks out to the very people that you love. And you wish you could go back, and you wish you could collect all of those experiences and undo that past. But it's like opening a pillow in the wind and the feathers are dispersed and you can never collect them. You cannot go back and it's a permanent part of your life. 
Rather, it's the circumstances of life. And then you got the worst news of your life. He or she did not want to be married any longer. Or your parents split up and you found out that the disease that your friend has or your loved one has is terminal and you can't imagine life without that person. Or you thought you had a rock-solid career and would be with a company forever, but you got the bad news and the security guard helped you pack up your desk and walked you to the door. And although you may have reasons for leaving faith, we are able to adjust our frame of reference. We can fix our eyes on the right thing and regain an accurate perspective. But many of us still struggle to leave our past and leave our frame of reference and leave our misconceptions and we struggle to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Maybe it's fear and you don't know where that fear comes from and you, you feel deeply insecure. You know it's irra irrational to feel it, but you, it keeps you from showing up and speaking up and living life. And your frame of reference is marked and shaded and jaded by the things that you have participated in and have no control over. In fact, when you hear other people's frame of reference, their life makes more sense. And when you hear your dad's story, it's like, oh, now, now I know why he was the way he was. And when you hear of your parents split up, and they hear the story behind it, you say, oh, now I understand. And life makes more sense when we hear the frame of reference for the experiences that we have gone through. And this is what happened when Jesus entered through the doorway from eternity to earth in that very first century. Jesus walked through the door. And when Jesus showed up on planet Earth and he walked through the door of their experience, his first century followers were jaded by the religious experiences they had. When Jesus showed up, first century believers were distorted and marred. It included things like, if you're sick, you must have done something bad. If you're healthy, it's because God loves you. And this is what the people believed at that time. They believed that God loved wealthy people. And if you were poor or ill or your children were sick, it was because God cursed you. Do you realize that there are still churches in this century who believe that? And it's a poor frame of reference. The first century Jews believed that, that Jews were God's favorite people. And then it was confusing because Rome, Rome had its heel on Israel and Palestine and Galilee and Judea and the whole area at the time. And they could not figure out if they were God's favorite people, why God was punishing them. Why was it that they were living in such bondage and persecution under such a heartless regime? What did they have to do to regain the favor of God? 
Even on the subject of the afterlife, the religious leaders were not consistent about what would happen on the other side of the door. What would they experience? In the Old Testament, the writers talked about a concept of Hades. And Hades was a place of nothing. It was no awareness and no soul sleep. They weren't even certain that they would wake up from this soul sleep. So God did for them what he ultimately did for, for us. He sent someone from the other side of the door, from the other side of the frame of reference, and he came here to planet Earth, and this is what Christmas is really all about. Before Jesus left Earth again he, and walked back into eternity, he had an experience with some of his close followers at the time. And he explained to them what fixing their eyes on Jesus was all about and why it was so critical. The disciples, along with Jesus, went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And in John 13, beginning at verse 33, Jesus says to them as they're, they're together, he says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer and you will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now Peter, he's kind of the self-appointed spokesman of the group, he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you'll follow me not later. So it's Peter's thinking, hey, that's not the question I asked. I asked you, where are you going? Lord, Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I, I, I would lay down my life for you. So Peter is, is speaking out of his frame of reference here that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. And in his understanding, this would be an earthly place. It would be a kingdom that they would probably have to conquer people. And they would rise to be this nation, this nation that Jesus was talking about being the Messiah. There would be a skirmish or a confrontation with temple guards and a confrontation with the Romans. And he's saying, Jesus, I'll be there fighting for you. So Peter was talking about this out of his own insecurity and what he was taught about the Messiah. Well, verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Now, I don't think Jesus was angry when he was talking to Peter this way. I think he, he was, it was more like he was putting his hand on Peter's shoulder and saying, buddy, <laughs> I know what's going to happen. And I know what, that you're going to deny me and it won't play out the way that you're thinking. But Peter, it's going to be okay. Just trust me. And then Jesus goes straight into this discourse with his followers. In chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. 
And the disciples did. Yes, they believed that God was out there somewhere. He said, believe also in me. To which they're thinking, okay, Jesus, you're talking crazy again. And you, you have these, this ability to, to deliver sermons that get you in trouble. Remember, Jesus, you talked about eating your, your flesh and drinking your blood. And, and just as we were gathering crowds, people heard this sermon and they said, this guy's off his rocker. And many of them left. And they're thinking to themselves, this gets you in trouble, Jesus. But Jesus continues. He says, my father's house has many rooms. Now, if you were Jewish, you knew that your father's house was the, the temple. The temple. And the temple had three major rooms. It had the outer court, it had the inner court, and then it had the Holy of Holies. The place where, where the priest went to sacrifice once a year. So now this is confusing to the disciples. Now, most of us are not Jewish here this morning, but we were taught years ago, at least I was, that the church building was God's house. And so we tell our children, don't run in God's house. Right? When you get into the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, you've got to be quiet. Don't clap. Don't laugh. You know, you've got to be reverent. We, we borrowed some of the concepts of, of the temple in the Old Covenant, and we brought them into the New Covenant. And so here's the disciples who, who have this frame of reference about the temple. And Jesus is talking about my Father's house, and it has many rooms. And he says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, and the disciples are thinking, oh, what are you talking about? You're going, you're coming back, and, and we're going to go? Like, what do you, what do you, I don't get it. And Jesus said, I'll come back, and I will take you with me, that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. And the disciples, again, this is, this is really strange. He's going to die, and then he, it's going to be mixed up with God's house. And so finally, Thomas. Thomas is this pragmatic, cynical guy. And, and one of the disciples, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? We're fishermen. We're tax collectors. We're not theologians. We don't know, and we don't get it. What are you talking about? And then Jesus makes an incredible statement. This statement is in the context of this conversation, and this next statement has often been used by the church to exclude people or to stiff-arm people. But when you read it in context, Jesus is making a case. He is saying, I have come to your side of the door to your frame of reference because your heavenly Father wants everybody in. He wants everybody to, to believe and to, to experience life. And he wants to take you so that you can be with him. And Jesus answered, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. 
And no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, he says, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you know him, and you have seen him. And it's just like Jesus is saying, why do you think I'm here? Why do you think I went from the doorway of eternity and walked through the door into earth and came to be among you? Why is that? I'm here to show you the way. Now, Philip, I love this statement, verse 8. Lord, he says to Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Philip expresses the, the yearning of every heart of us. Show us God. Show us God. This is the cry not only of religious people, but agnostics want to know for sure, and atheists want evidence. To which Jesus says, if you see me, you see God. I am the way. He says, I am the truth. I am the life. I can take you to Father God. He's saying, guys, look at me. Look at me. I'm as much truth that you will ever be able to comprehend about God in your lifetime. I came to give you eternal life. The disciples present themselves as clueless. In, in, and I love this. And let me just go on a tangent for a minute because this, this, is, this is beautiful. How do you know that, that the text is really authentic? How do you know that this is historical and, and true? How do you know? It is because one of the reasons for believing in the accuracy of the text that we're reading, one of the criterion for determining whether or not an ancient document is authentic or reliable is what is called the criteria of embarrassment. And it goes like this. And this doesn't just apply to biblical writings. This applies to ancient documents that are non-religious. Any account that would be embarrassing to the author is presumed to be true because it's highly unlikely that an author would invent or create an embarrassing account about himself. Which is one of the reasons why I believe the New Testament to be true. The disciples are presented as these clueless, ignorant people that don't get it, and they write down the the fact that they are clueless. So here's the disciples and, and Jesus' conversation. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. My house, my father's house. We didn't know he had a house. Uh, is it not the temple? Are you talking about dying? Are you talking about coming back to life? Do we get to go with you? And in all of this, in all of this confusion in this conversation, Philip posed the question, that represents what we want to see. He says, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. We just want to know what God is like. And this is the cry of every human heart. Show us God. In spite of my sin, in spite of my circumstances, in spite of what I've learned about God, help me get past my insecurity and my fear, 
and what I've been educated to know and just show me God. The good news, the good news of Christmas is your heavenly Father wants you to see Him. So He sent Jesus Christ through the door of eternity to come into our experience. And Jesus was here to show us what the Father is really like. If you want to know what God is like, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. So this morning, if you're outside and you're wondering if you can come back, or if you've never been on the inside, and you wonder if you have to sacrifice your brain to become a Christian, or if you're leaning toward the door and you got your hand on the knob and you're tempted to walk out, and you're wondering if you should be in or out, Jesus said, I'll simplify this for you. I'll simplify it. Believe in me, he says. Believe when I say the Father and I are one. Don't just have faith in faith. At least believe in the evidence, the evidence of the works themselves. This is so important because everyone who studies the first century, ancient history, would affirm that Jesus Christ is a historical figure. And if you went to university years ago and your professor said that Jesus was not a historical figure, he never did exist, that is old information. Nobody talks that way anymore. That idea is dead and gone. There's virtually no one who believes that Jesus did not exist. And we know that his followers launched the church weeks after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were with him. They, they watched him being placed into the tomb. Three days later, they experienced the empty tomb, and then they saw Jesus. The disciples had breakfast with him on the beach. They knew that Jesus Christ was alive and real, and he was their Savior. And because of that event, it launched the church. It launched Christianity. How is it that these disciples who were confused and clueless were now confident and informed? How could they begin a movement that includes one-third of our world, over two billion Christians? How is it that they could walk into the streets of Jerusalem and pr proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that the world was waiting for? It is because Jesus Christ was alive and they fixed their eyes on Jesus Christ, and they never took their eyes off of him, and they changed the world. And if you've left Christianity, this is the point I want to make. And if you're thinking about leaving, this is the point I want you to consider. God wanted to be so clear that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He sent a person. And if you take your eyes off Jesus, you'll miss God the Father. And Jesus would say, I'm as close as you will ever come to knowing what God is really like in this life. Friends, Jesus entered the door of the world so that you could enter the door of faith. You can know God personally 
Because Jesus is the way, He's the truth, and He's the life. And to these early Christians who were confused about Jesus' return and thought it was taking too long and wondered had they missed it and wondered, was He really the Messiah? The writer to the Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a reference to why Jesus Christ came through the doorway from eternity to earth that first Christmas. Not only did he come to show us what God is like, he came to die on a cross. He took all of our shortcomings, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of the things that we did wrong, all of the sin that was laid on him, and he died on that cross. And when he came out of the grave alive and went back through the doorway to eternity, it says he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, this is what communion is really about. Communion is a remembrance of what Christ has done. That he came that first Christmas. Not that we could have a nostalgic time of snowflakes and Santa Claus, but that we might see who God really is. He came as the frame of reference for people just like you and me. The frame of reference for the people at that time was in order to pay for their sins, they had to bring an animal to the priest who would sacrifice it on the altar because there had to be a blood sacrifice to cover sin. It was life for life. And when Jesus was on the cross, he was the ultimate sacrifice. That was the altar. And his blood was poured out for you and for me. And when he, he was about to die, his last words were, it is finished. The payment is finished. It is done. There's no more to do. There's nothing that we can do to gain his favor. He said it is finished, and he bowed his head, and it says he rested. He rested. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can place our sin on the altar, so to speak, and we can rest. We can rest in what he has done. And when we give our life to Jesus, we sit down figuratively and spiritually with Jesus Christ on the right hand of God the Father. And we rest. If I could talk to believers just for a moment, some of you know that you still struggle with the sins and the habits and the hang-ups of your life. You wonder why that You've received Christ and you still blow it. 
And the reason is you're human. And Jesus says, you don't have to crawl your way back to me. I've paid once for all, and you can come to me and confess it, and my sacrifice was sufficient. It was forever. And you can be restored and renewed. And you can walk out of here as clean as the driven snow. The writer says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and you won't lose heart. So much of life, we grow weary and we can lose heart. And we wonder, am I really believing the right thing? This morning, would you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ? Would you receive him? Would you give him a chance? Would you give your life to him? Would you trust him again? Singers are going to sing this song, Come to the Altar. The altar is the place of sacrifice, and the altar is inside our own life. And they're just inviting you to come and recommit your life to Christ and dump all the garbage of your life before him and receive his grace and receive all that he has for you. Would you prepare yourself now to receive communion?